Chapter 6 of Little Pilgrimages Among the Women Who Have Written Famous Books. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Holland. Little Pilgrimages Among the Women Who Have Written Famous Books by Edward Francis Harkins. Chapter 6 Anna Catherine Green, Mrs. Rolfs. It is related that when the Leavenworth case was published in 1878, the Pennsylvania legislature turned from politics to discuss the identity of its author. There was the name on the title page, Anna Catherine Green, as distinct as the city of Harrisburg itself. But it must be a nom de plume, some protested. A man wrote the story, maybe a man already famous, and signed a woman's name to it. The story was manifestly beyond a woman's powers. Feminine names were considerably scarcer in the American fiction list than they are today, when girls fresh from the high school take a place among the authors of the best-selling books. A New York lawyer happened to be present at the politician's discussion. You are mistaken, he said to the incredulous. I have seen the author of the Leavenworth case and conversed with her, and her name is really Miss Green. Then she must have got some man to help her, retorted the more obstinate theorists. They strongly remind us of the characters whom Miss Green, as we shall call her for the moment, portrays so skillfully, the self-willed characters that aim so well but do not hit even the target, not to mention the bull's-eye. The incredulity exemplified by the Pennsylvanians was natural enough that an american woman in those days should venture into the field of romantic literature was so uncommon as to be noteworthy but that an american woman should write detective stories well that was quite preposterous and yet nowadays it would seem no more preposterous than a request to mr carnegie to build a library for the love of a good detective story of a story interwoven with adventure and mystery is in most persons a simple manifestation of the instinctive love of excitement we know a professor one of the most brilliant men in his profession who has never lost his juvenile fondness for the pursuit of fire engines similarly many men and women are never cured of their youthful passion for the literature of the disguises and the handcuffs hawkshaw how the name thrills even today it takes many a man back to the days when the tattered dime novel was smuggled into the schoolroom. Sometimes the almost breathless attention to syntax or the map of the New England states betrayed the guilt. But we firmly believe that there were teachers who never confiscated those prizes. But measuring by the incessant changes in times and in manners, it is not difficult to understand that a quarter of a century ago, the still conservative reading public was loth to believe that the author of the Leavenworth case was a woman. Anna Catherine Green, the woman in question, was born in Brooklyn, New York, on November 11, 1846. She was 32, therefore, it will be seen, when the story that made her famous was published. Her father was a well-known lawyer. Indeed, the Greens, we have been told, were a family of lawyers. This may account for the skill with which the daughter has tied and cut Gordian knots. It unquestionably accounts for her nimble imagination, her skill in producing subtle hypotheses, and her strength in handling the most intricate psychological problems. In 1867, Anna was graduated from the Ripley Female College in Poultney, Vermont 
and she may, if she please, write B.A. after her name. She composed verses and stories at the age of 11. And speaking of verses, how many readers are acquainted with the fact that the author of the Leavenworth case is also the author of a drama in blank verse and of a volume of ballads and narrative poems? Yet the defense of the bride and other poems has won encomiums from discreet critics, and in some respects, Recife's Daughter, a drama, is her most ambitious work. Perhaps, therefore, as we are to consider her poetry as an incidental, it may not be amiss at this point to quote a few characteristic verses. The two stanzas which follow are taken from a poem entitled At the Piano. Play on, play on, as softly glides, the low refrain I seem, I seem, to float, to float on golden tides, by sunlit isles where life and dream are one are one and hope and bliss move hand in hand and thrilling kiss neath bowery blooms in twilight glooms and love is life and life is love play on play on as higher rise the lifted strains i seem i seem to mount to mount through roseate skies through drifted cloud and golden gleam to realms to realms of thought and fire where angels walk and souls aspire, and sorrow comes but as the night that brings a star for our delight. Some of the criticisms of the book, The Defense of the Bride and Other Poems, were extremely and indeed rather absurdly flattering. A moderately toned opinion was given in Harper's Monthly. The ballads and narrative poems which form the greater part of this collection are vigorous productions, whose barrenness of redundant words and epithets and whose directness and straightforwardness of narration are in strong contrast with the diffuse garrulity of most female writers she has the true storyteller's faculty for investing what she has to say with interest and for keeping expectation on the stretch and she delivers her message with masculine force and brevity one of the critics by the way compared miss green she was still Miss Green then, in 1882, with Alfred Austin. Miss Green, says the critic, seems to be able to say delicate and graceful things as easily as does the English poet. That was before Mr. Austin became poet laureate, before comparisons with him were particularly odious. Recife's daughter, we may say, in a word, is notable rather than for its well-sustained dramatic strength than for any especial skill or grace of versification. It seems to have convinced its author that her lines might be cast in happier places. But to return to the main road, we have already seen that as a girl, Anna had literary aspirations, but they reached no serious stage of development until after her return from Ripley College. She felt drawn to literature, and yet she was in no hurry either to decide which of the diverse literary fields was best suited to her taste and talent, or to see her name in print. At this critical time, her father was friend and counselor. He perceived that there was no fickleness back of his daughter's ambition to adopt literature as a profession. And what is more important, he perceived that she might successfully qualify as a candidate. So he set about to direct and to encourage her zeal. He found Anna a docile pupil. When doubts arose, when discouragement appeared, he was nearby to cheer her and to advise. He enlisted her sympathy in different cases that interested him. He sharpened her wits. He discoursed to her on his own interesting experiences. 
he contributed judicious criticisms. Above all, he fostered her confidence in her own powers. In this way, she acquired from her father gifts that she had not inherited from him. Hers was a remarkably well-equipped intellect before one of her books had been published. The Leavenworth case came to startle the reading public in 1878. The plot of the story had been in the author's mind for some years. The book, therefore, was no inspired or spasmodic effort. Rather, it was the product of a finely regulated intellect applied to the ever-entertaining theories of cause and effect. What if those legislators had been informed of the fact that the author was a student of criminology? Mrs. Rolfs is too adept a psychologist to pretend that instinct led her with the manuscript of the Leavenworth case to Mr. G.P. Putman's office. It was more likely a simple piece of good fortune to happen upon so wise and liberal an appraiser. It is a tribute to his perspicacity that he introduced to the American reading public one of its most popular writers, and it is a happy commentary on the relationship between author and publisher that with an exception or two the Putman House has issued the periodical output of Anna Catherine Green. When a strange disappearance appeared in 1885, a critic, or perhaps we should say reviewer, made the comment, We have a Gaborio in our own tongue. It must have seemed extremely flattering, assuming that the author of A Strange Disappearance is normally susceptible to flattery, to be named favorably in the same sentence with the brilliant Frenchman. Mrs. Rolfs resembles Gaborio insofar as her strong point, as his was, is the simple and perspicuous narrative of events. Thus, too, she resembles Wilkie Collins, who was called an imitator of Gaborio. But we doubt that any pen, excepting Gaborio's, could write or could have written the first part of Monsieur Lecoq. Possibly the English writer thought he saw an imitator in the author of the Leavenworth case. At any rate, while she was enjoying the first fruits of renown, Collins wrote to her publishers that he sincerely admired her stories, and we understand that he conveyed to the young American some wise practical hints and warm expressions of belief in her future. The belief has been abundantly justified. It is said, we quote from an anonymous paper dealing with the career of the New York author, that she does not herself claim to be a novelist. She is not a novelist in the sense that George Eliot and Hawthorne are novelists. These words remind us of the reflections of Mr. Herbert Paul, the brilliant English essayist on Collins's Woman in White and Moonstone. Are these books and others like them literature, he asks? Wilkie Collins deliberately stripped his style of all embellishment. Even epithets are excluded as they are from John Austin's Letters on Jurisprudence. It is strange that a man of letters should try to make his books resemble police reports. But if he does, he must take the consequences. He cannot serve God and mammon. The reflections, to some extent, may be applied direct to Mrs. Rolfe's books, for they, too, are stripped almost bare of epithets. But if, as Mr. Crawford, for example, urges, if the first purpose of a novel is entertainment, then the books bearing the name of Anna Catherine Green are excellent novels. But it is not a point to be insisted upon. Let the statement suffice that the books in question, whatever be their true denomination, give rare pleasure. Fastidious critics like Professor Bates of Wellesley may classify them as police court literature, but even in the police court is revealed the joy and the woe of human passions, 
the wonderful keenness and the terrible dullness of the human intellect mrs rolfs knows her limitations and is content to be exalted or condemned by her performances her manner of working takes us back to charles reed the account of any remarkable or strange event that comes to her attention in the reading of the newspapers she cuts out and pastes into a scrapbook when the time comes to write out the plots which she has previously developed in her mind she takes care to work only when she can work at her best sometimes she writes therefore two hours a day sometimes ten but there is none of that plan of persistent plotting day in and day out to produce a prescribed amount which antony trollope carried on so successfully yet in the twenty-three years covering her literary career she has written a score of books this has been no light task for one with a household to take care of for in november eighteen eighty four the novelist became mrs charles rolfs some of the books have been translated into german and swedish which circumstance is a notable tribute to their attractiveness technically professor bates was justified in referring to mrs rolfs as the foremost representative in america to-day of police court literature yet to us this reference seems unsatisfactory inadequate it conveys no hint of the constructive skill the imaginative power and the perceptive faculties necessary for the praiseworthy writing of police court literature and furthermore it offers no suggestion of anna katherine green's exquisite sense of humor how delightfully for example that most interesting spencer in that affair next door miss butterworth as we remember the name plays hostess for the van burnham girls what a genuine piece of comedy amid the pathos and terror round about and how much flesh and blood there is in many of these unpretentious tales of mystery one may not approve that sort of literature or take any pleasure in it but it is not to be denied that mrs rolfs writes artistically art concerns the work not the subject we venture the prediction that the stories written by anna katherine green by virtue not only of their attractive skilfulness but also of their perennially interesting subjects will be read eagerly and with delight when many of the novels of the brighter present fame have accumulated dust End of chapter six